Hello, this is William Fink of Christianity.org. Today is Friday, April 7th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We have just finished a commentary on the Epistle of Paul to Titus, and that leaves just two epistles remaining to complete our commentary on the letters of Paul, which has already run for 108 weeks. I apologize for that. <laughs> for that. <laughs> and we only have two remaining epistles, those which were written to Timothy. But because Titus and 1 Timothy are so similar in content, we have thought to take an intermission before making a presentation of 1 Timothy and to do something else in the meantime. Every once in a while, it's good to get back to some basics. Furthermore, because we plan to travel soon and that places some restrictions on my work, we have thought about what we are going to do, what we are going to present while we are on the road as we plan on being later this spring. So here we are going to begin a presentation and critical review of Clifton Emmeheiser's series of short essays which he titled Special Notices to All Who Deny to Seedline and which he concluded after 24 parts. If my own memory serves me correctly, Clifton wrote these from 2000, perhaps the later part of 2000 through 2002 and at that time they were among some of the very first materials which he had asked me to proofread. I'll be on the road next week and we will be presenting part two of Clifton's special notices. We're going to Bristol to see Melissa's grandfather who is very sick and in our prayers. There is Another reason why I chose to begin presenting these special notices at this time, and that is to once again review many of the basic principles upon which our version of the Christian identity faith is grounded. I say our version because sadly, not all identity Christians are on the same page or even close in their various doctrines. A lot of identity Christian so-called pastors have one foot stuck in Judeo-Christianity and as a backlash against Judeo-Christianity, even though they haven't shed all of their baggage, they have stuck their other foot back into the Hebrewism of the Old Testament basically making Judaizers of themselves and adopting elements of the so-called Hebrew Roots Movement or pretending that we should revert to many aspects of the Old Testament dispensation, which is certainly important to us. There are important lessons to learn from it, but we shouldn't revert to it in Christ. That's why Paul had such a great struggle with the Judaizers. We should get out of Judeo-Christianity, but we should not become Judaizers. 
Looking around during this past week for a topic for this evening's program, I came across a quote I had saved from a conversation, actually a Facebook conversation, which really wasn't a conversation at all, wherein Ted Wheeland, a supposed identity Christian pastor and former rodeo clown, was pontificating about the election of God. And he had quoted William J. Cameron's book, The Covenant People. Now, I love and respect the work of William J. Cameron, his work for the Dearborn Independent. I read his book, The Covenant People, in 1998. But there are a lot of misconceptions dragged into Christian identity from the Judeo-Christian world, and not only that, but even worse, from the Jewish humanitarianism and egalitarianism, which the world has come to accept as the status quo, as the way things are supposed to be, but which Christ and Yahweh our God certainly would not accept, because Yahweh is not an egalitarian by any means, and Jesus hates, and Jesus discriminates. We have to sort out this Jewish egalitarianism, this humanitarianism, that the, the, the Jewish principles which the world loves, and, and Freemasonic principles which have been forced upon the world, and we have to cleanse Christian identity of this leaven. While William J. Cameron did very good in many parts of, of his work, he had some excellent work. He had a lot of these egalitarian principles, and we're about to see them. Ted Wieland, or Ted Weenieland, I like to call him, because he's just a weenie. I don't have any respect for Ted Wieland, and I will speak about that shortly. Ted Wieland quoted William J. Cameron as if he were some sort of authority which we should all follow. And here are the quotes that he offered in his conversation. The Bible, he says, well, William J. Cameron said, the Bible is not a history of the human race at large, but one distinct strain of people amongst the family, the races. That's the way Wheeling quoted it. That's the way he still has it on his website. It's not right. It should say the family of races. And we'll discuss that more, more in a few moments. All the other races are considered with reference to it. The Bible deals with one race which flows like a gulf stream through the ocean of humanity as the actual gulf stream touches two continents and blesses the nations. So this race in its origin, history, and destiny, destiny was selected and equipped for the service of the other nations, and Wieland put that word other in brackets as if he added it, and he goes on to quote a second paragraph from William Cameron, which states, of course, many people still have their own ideas about this, and that creates a difficulty, for when people get their own ideas about things, it always leads to confusion. Tell me that isn't true. 
I don't know where Cameron got this thing about the family of the races and, and, and the ocean of humanity. That sure as hell leads to confusion. It's not in the Bible. You won't find the words ocean of humanity in Scripture. You won't find the family of the races in Scripture. You'll find the families of one particular race in Genesis chapter 10. There ain't nothing in there about the family of the races. But I'm digressing. Of course, many people, Cameron says, and Whelan quotes, so Whelan's basically saying it too. Of course, many people still have their own ideas about this, and that creates a difficulty. For when people get their own ideas about things, it always leads to confusion. A man will rise in demand. By what right does God choose one race or people above another? I like that form of the question, Cameron says. It is much better than asking by what right God degrades one people beneath another, although that is implied. God's grading is always upward. If he raises up a nation, it is that other nations may be raised up through its ministry. Now, this is another idea which is totally contrary to Scripture. If he exalts a great man, an apostle of liberty or science or faith, it is that he might raise a degraded people to a better condition. And, of course, we've seen this happen in Scripture, but it doesn't, where it correlates to men amongst the children of Israel, it doesn't relate to the children of Israel amongst the other nations. The divine selection is not a prize, a compliment paid to the man or the race. It is a burden imposed. To appoint a chosen people is not a pandering to the racial vanity of a superior people. It is a yoke bound upon the necks of those who are chosen for a special service. Wieland himself inserted the word other, where Cameron later mentioned the service of the nations. It seems to me that Wieland probably did clarify Cameron's original intent. These quotations from Cameron are very well representative of the poison of Jewish egalitarianism and humanitarianism, which have infected Christian identity from its formative years under British Israel in the late 19th century. There is no family of races in Scripture. There is no service of the other nations demanded of the children of Israel in Scripture. While Cameron is correct that divine selection was not a prize, the election of the children of Israel was not the election of one race above all other races. Since the other races, the non-Adamic races, were never candidates for such an election. Never. They were never considered. Rather, it was an election of one family of a particular race above all the other families of that same particular race. The children of Israel were selected by Yahweh above all of the other Genesis 10 Adamic families to do his will. Therefore, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, he separated the sons of Adam. He set the bounds of the people, meaning the people of Adam, according to the number of the children of Israel. 
The passage from Deuteronomy describes the separation event found in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where sometime after the flood, in the time of Peleg, the Adamic families were separated into divisions of the land. The other races, as they may have existed at that early time, were already separated geographically. Only the white race is found in Mesopotamia and the Levant at the time of Genesis chapter 10, as we see in Genesis chapter 2, that Yahweh God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. However, there was evidently one other race in the midst of that garden, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a race which Ted Wheeland denies the presence of. They are the so-called fallen angels of Scripture, the fallen angels of the Revelation, and we shall certainly discuss them as we present these 24 essays by Clifton Emmeheiser. A companion to this Jewish and Freemasonic egalitarianism which has infected Christian identity is what is called Dominion Theology. Dominion Theology is the belief that the Adamic race was meant to serve and civilize the non-Adamic or non-white races teaching them the laws of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. And such an idea is not found in the Dominion Mandate of Genesis chapter 1. As David exclaimed in Psalm 147, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not done so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. So David expressed joy that Yahweh did not give his laws unto the other nations. And anyone who claims that the other races are among those nations must nevertheless accept the fact that the laws of God are not for them either. In truth, however, David was only speaking of the Adamic and the enemy Canaanite nations, and the other races as we know them were not even within his focus. If you, even if you want to put them in his focus, even if you want to take a shoehorn and some grease and kind of force them in there, the law is not for any other nation, period. David didn't say, oh, but we have to go take this and, and teach this to the heathens. No, David expressed absolute joy. He praised Yahweh that the law was not for them. Dominion theology, the way it was perceived by early British Israel writers, like the William Cameron, is wrong by any measure of scripture. It was conceived as a means of upholding the legitimacy of the British Empire. And look at the result. Britain is now overrun and is being destroyed by all of the non-white beasts over which she had, she had at one time ruled. Sometime around 1500 B.C., the children of Israel were promised by Yahweh to be set above all nations which he created if they kept his commandments 
as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 26, And Yahweh has avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he has promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations which he has made. Notice that he qualifies that. He didn't say that he made all nations. He set the children of Israel high above all nations which he has made in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be a holy people unto Yahweh thy God as he has spoken. Not keeping the laws of their God, the children of Israel have no special status above the other Adamic nations. So Yahweh used those other nations, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, to punish them. The Philistines were all Adamic. But the Adamic dominion mandate is different. And it includes all Adamic nations as it is described in Genesis chapter 1. This transcends the relationship which Yahweh had with Israel. And it was repeated after the flood to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Where it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, you shall not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, and at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. So even if the other so-called human races are included anywhere within the scope of this statement, Adamic dominion is not to teach them the law. Rather, Adamic dominion is that they too would be in dread and in fear of the children of Adam. By any measure, there is no racial egalitarianism in Scripture. The Adamic man, and especially the children of Israel, were never commissioned by Yahweh God to serve the other races. As it says in Exodus chapter 32, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Yahweh is the God of Israel. Respecting people of other nations and other races is the very same thing as fearing their gods. Like we read in Genesis chapter 9, where the children of Israel were obedient to Yahweh, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 2, This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven. Who shall hear report of thee, and shall tremble, and shall be in anguish because of thee? 
the children of Israel, being obedient to Yahweh their God, every other nation is to be in fear of them, but those other nations do not receive his law. They just get the hell out of the way, or they get run over, period. Now, everywhere, the camp of the saints is surrounded and is being overrun by the world's non-Adamic races. These are the swarms of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. These are the flood from the mouth of the dragon. These are the tools of the international Jew that Satan, which has gathered all nations to battle against the camp of the saints. The children of Israel in the white nations formerly known as Christendom Yet to this very day, as the prospects of the white race for existence in the world are getting dimmer and dimmer, of course we don't lose faith that we're going to lose, we have faith that we're going to prevail, but yet to this very day we contend with clowns like Ted Wheeland who spread this egalitarian doctrine amongst identity Christians deceiving them into believing that the sheep can possibly civilize the pigs, the wolves, and the goats so as not to get eaten. With this in mind, we shall present the first of Clifton's special notices to all who deny two seed lines. Clifton begins on the same note. For those who may not be aware of it, we are at war. Even at the time of our birth, there was an enemy in the background plotting to destroy us, along with all that we hold dear. This war has been going on continuously now, without a break, for over 7,000 years, the Septuagint chronology being the more accurate. There have been Many fatalities by murder, including Abel, the prophets, John the Baptist, his father Zacharias, the Messiah, and in more recent history, 20 million white Ukrainians. To that we could add 50 million people who died in the First World War who were mostly white, another 50 million maybe who died in the Second World War who were mostly white. The First World War number might be a little inflated, but it's 100 million people mostly white, in the 20th century, who have died in wars on behalf of the Jew. Clifton says that while we have a genuine enemy, there are those on the sidelines who declare the enemy doesn't exist, Ted Wheeland. Such an attitude is the zenith of irresponsibility. While the enemy is literally destroying our very being, those distracting gainsayers only want to play a game of theology. They all have to be kicked to the curb. Every single one of them, if you're an identity Christian, should kick these clowns to the curb if you really have faith in Christ. Clifton goes on. Ted R. Whelan, Jeffrey A. Weekly, Stephen E. Jones, among other one-seed-liners. Or maybe you could call them non-seed-liners go to a lot of effort to prove that the two-seed-line doctrine is a dangerous teaching. I will tell you what is really dangerous. When we have an enemy who has a history of 7,000 years of murder, 
including the Messiah, and to proclaim that this enemy doesn't exist, now that is dangerous. Because of this, I am getting a little perturbed and distraught over all the refuse being promoted by people well-meaning, but really immature in the word of Yahweh, who ridicule to seedline teaching. They go to great lengths with their oral gymnastics, trying to prove it's all a spiritual matter. They scoff at the idea of a genetic enemy. I am not the one making the claim that this is a matter of genetics. But the Bible unmistakably conveys this definite fact in no uncertain terms. And Clifton is right that Ted Wieland and his ilk are, for the most part, they are sincere in what they believe. And I really also think that they mean to do well. They're just bumbling idiots that refuse to accept the truth for one reason or another. And on the other hand, and this is my personal experience with Ted Wieland, they are pompously arrogant asses that cannot bear the possibility of correction on these important issues. I myself have run into Ted Whelan several times in social media, and I've challenged him, and he will not even engage with me. He uses the excuse that I call him a clown not to talk to me. But that is a lie, and I could prove it. The proof of his lie was published on IsraelElect.com. Many on the IsraelElect.com website many years ago, in the form of a rather gentlemanly letter, a very gentlemanly letter, considering my normal demeanor, which I sent to Ted Wheeland in 2000. <laughs> in 2005, while I was still in prison. That letter proves, because it's never been answered, that Ted Wheeland only uses the fact that I call him a clown as an excuse not to talk to me. He wouldn't talk to me when I was in prison. The letter is now published at Christagenia. I was a prisoner. I wrote to Wheeland at length, making honest inquiries. I challenged him to kindly show me where I was in error, and he never responded. For that reason, I call him a clown. And now he uses that as an excuse not to engage me, when he really did not need an excuse. Back in 2005, he is really a coward as well as a clown. Here Clifton uses the term one seed liners, but he suggested that they should be called non-seed liners, and that's more accurate. Even better, he suggests they should be called anti-seed liners, and in the paragraph which follows here, and in many cases that is even more accurate. The non-seedliners simply do not see the empirical importance of race in Scripture. I do not know how the term one-seedliners came into existence, but it is really not accurate, and I myself am not in favor of using it. However, perhaps it is fitting for anyone who mistakenly thinks that Yahweh God created all of the world's races as we know them today. If we are a nation in the family of races, well then, one seed liner is fitting for those clowns. Continuing with Clifton. The one seed liners, or non-seed liners, or maybe anti-seed liners, 
point to Genesis 4.1 where it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from Yahweh. And Clifton says that they will say, you see there, Cain was the son of Adam. And he says that they don't seem to realize that Eve was already pregnant with Cain before Adam knew her. If they would take the time to study and see what the rest of the Bible has to say on the matter, they wouldn't come to that erroneous conclusion. Let's consider 1 John 3.12. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his half brother. Clifton puts half in brackets. And he does that, and it's fitting, because the Greek and Hebrew had no words to describe a half-brother or a half-sister. Every once in a while you might see a, a reference to a brother by the same mother or a brother by the same father, but they really had no word for half-brother or half-sister. And throughout the scriptures, a half-brother or half-sister is considered a brother or a sister. That's true of Jesus Christ, of Yahshua Christ, and his brothers and sisters. Look at what Jude and what James say, the brothers of the Lord. Paul calls them the brothers of the Lord, not the half-brothers of the Lord. Look at Ishmael, the brother of Isaac. He's not the half-brother of Isaac. Look at the sons of Jacob Israel. Now, Leah had six sons and a daughter, but the other six sons were only half-brothers to Leah's six sons, but they're never called half-brothers, they're brothers. So the word half-brother is not found in Scripture. Clifton goes on and he continues, and he says that here the word of in Greek is number 1537 in the Strong's Concordance. When used implying a person, it means a son of. And he says he will develop more on this shortly. We will discuss this at length tonight. As I said, this series is getting back to the nuts and bolts. So part of it's going to be maybe a little... Maybe it seems like we spend an inordinate amount of time on trivial issues, but they have to be correctly explained and understood, so sometimes that's what it takes. Clifton says that to show this, we will consider some of the various translations of the Bible on 1 John 3.12. And I personally would say that most of these translations are paraphrases, but nevertheless exhibit the translator's understanding of the preposition. Some are good and others are not so good. So Clifton, Clifton quotes 1 John 3.12 from the New Testament in Modern English by J.B. Phillips. One of the ones that is not so good because he actually adds ideas here which are not in the text. And it says, We are none of us to have the spirit of Cain who was a son of the devil. So he got the preposition right, the meaning of the preposition, but that spirit of that that spirit of idea is not in the original text. Smith and Goodspeed. We must not be like Cain who was a child of the evil one. And the Living Bible actually drops the ball here. We are not to be like Cain who belonged to Satan. And the New English Bible, and unlike Cain who was a child of the evil one. 
and that would be correct. The New Century Bible, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one. The New Jerusalem Bible, not to be like Cain who was from the evil one. And the Modern Reader's Bible, not as Cain was of the evil one. And Clifton says that now that we have consulted some various translations on 1 John 3.12, let's take a look at some Bible commentaries on this same verse. Now, let me take a short digression first. Well, Melissa stole my beer, I'm sorry. Let me take a short digression first and say that Clifton's technique has always been to go to Bible commentaries and see what the various Bible commentators say about a passage in order to dig to the bottom of the passage. And and that's fine. I will never um, criticize that technique negatively. My own technique has been to resort to the original languages and bypass what what I consider an awful lot of wood, hay, and stubble to find a few gems. Clifton digs through a lot of wood, hay, and stubble to find some gems of understanding, and he's very diligent about that. My own technique, and I'm not saying that I, I find the answers to everything this way, but my own technique is to dig through the original word meanings and how they're used elsewhere in scripture, but also how they're used in the regular everyday language of the Greeks or the Hebrews. And that's what's important. That's what's most important. So we have different techniques, and that's probably a good thing. It probably is, because we come to many of the same conclusions. Clifton quotes the Wycliffe Bible Commentary. He... Cain, is said to have belonged to the family of the wicked one. And then he quotes Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible, volume 3, page 936, where it says, which showed him, meaning Cain, of 1 John 3.12, which showed him to be of that wicked one, one of the serpent's seed. So early was such seed sown, and so ancient the enmity between seed and seed. Matthew Poole was basically two seed line, right there. I, I mean, that's it. Then he quotes Matthew Henry's commentary. It showed that he, Cain, was as the firstborn of the serpent's seed. And that's also a very two seed line statement. I wouldn't personally agree with it, Maybe the firstborn of the serpent seed into the race of Adam. That I would agree with. But we have to understand the serpent is related to the devil and his angels. Those angels cast out of heaven in Revelation chapter 12. So the serpent is only one particular individual representative of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which must be a reference to all the rest of those fallen angels and whatever they may have produced here on earth after their fall. And the answers to that we've discussed often, we won't discuss here, but they are found in the Enoch literature and in other apocryphal scriptures. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
I see as an entire race. And there's plenty of serpent seed, every branch on that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Cain was the firstborn of the serpent seed, born into the Adamic race. That's the way I see it. And Clifton says that, that it is speaking concerning the genetics of Cain and his descendants compared to the genetics of the woman and her descendants can be readily observed in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, three verses before this verse, contrasting the seed or offspring of the serpent and the seed or offspring, offspring of the woman. Sometimes I just try to get too much out and my lungs run out of air. I'm sorry. And Clifton quotes 1 John 3, 9, which says, Whosoever is born of Yahweh does not commit sin, for his seed, sperma, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of Yahweh. And just as Paul of Tarsus had also taught, as in Adam all men die, in Christ all men shall be made alive, so long as they are the seed of Adam. So Paul taught the same thing that John teaches in a very different way here. There are greater spiritual reasons for the experience of our Adamic race, which have nothing to do with the other so-called races. So we can sin, but John speaks in a manner which indicates that sin will not be accounted Continuing with Clifton, here the word for seed, meaning in 1 John chapter 3 verse, chapter 3 verse 9, here the word for seed in the Strong's Concordance is the Greek word number 4690, sperma, and you can't get any more genetic than that. In other words, the reason the descendants of Satan through Cain, and Clifton puts in parentheses the Jews, but there are actually many, many more than just the Jews. The reason the descendants of Satan through Cain act the way they do is because it is in their genes. Likewise, those born of Adam and Eve, the offspring of Yahweh, will behave according to their genetics. And of course, the exception to that is the evil, wicked influences they have from the other side of the coin. Our sins would still be, but they would be a hell of a lot less. Clifton says that there is a real problem with the word seed, sperma, as expressed by W.E. Vine in his An Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. This is what he says on page 339. While the plural form seeds, neither in Hebrew nor in Greek, would have been natural any more than in English, it is not used in scripture of human offspring, its plural occurrence is in 1 Samuel 8.15 of crops. Yet if the divine intention had been to refer to Abraham's natural descendants, another word would have been chosen in the plural, such as children, and I would interject that W.E. Vine is simply full of shit. He's lying. But Clifton makes an exposition of that. Clifton says, no, there is nothing wrong with the first half of Vine's statement, which is actually helpful. 
explaining that in Hebrew and Greek, a singular seed is used to denote a collective plural, as in English. It is the second half of Vine's statement which is faulty. Using a word that describes a collective and limiting it to a single one. That's absolutely faulty. Further, in the original Hebrew, it may very well be that seed is always singular, except in 1 Samuel 8.15, where multiple varieties are implied. And the plural would certainly be proper. And I would have to interject here because Clifton didn't discuss it in this paper himself, that the word seed appears in a plural in one other verse in Scripture. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, where multiple varieties are implied, because Paul is talking about the elect seed of Abraham, and he says that it's not from seeds. And Paul is using the word seeds in a plural as a rhetorical device to show that Esau and Ishmael and the sons of Keturah are excluded as opposed to the children of Jacob, Israel. That's what Paul is doing there in Galatians chapter 3. And that's why the word seed appears in a the plural there and also in the singular. And we'll discuss that more as this series progresses. Clifton goes on to say that it would therefore be proper to indicate that Eve's seed like Jacob's seed, would be a singular kind of seed. There is a world of difference between a single variety of seed and a single seed. How are we to interpret Genesis 17.7, where it says, Thy seed, after their generations. It should be noted that all of Yahweh's covenants with Adam man were made with a single variety of seed. The word seed in scripture is important for excludes all those who are not seed, meaning all those who are not of that particular variety of seed. And among other things, Clifton's words here had later inspired me to write a two-part series of essays entitled The Seed of Inheritance, where I had attacked W.E. Vine's statements, which Clifton provides here, in even greater depth. Continuing with Clinton, with Clifton, I'm sorry, He says that whether or not Vine had an axe to grind is hard to say, but he doesn't seem to ring entirely true according to Wilson's Old Testament word studies on page 377, where Wilson states concerning this word, semen virile, meaning male semen, hence children, offspring, posterity, spoken also of one child when and only one, and I will qualify that shortly. It should seem that vine, Clifton says, is applying the singular seed, sperma, in all cases, whether in a collective sense or in situations where there is but one child. Also, vine's statement does not square with the meaning of Strong's number 2233, seed, which is the word zerah, in the Jesenius' Old Testament lexicon. I believe that many of the one seed liners have been misled by vine. By vine applying a false premise for the word seed, or sperma, it would be hard to estimate his influence in many Bible commentaries and religious books. 
There is one thing about it. Either Vine is wrong or Wilson is wrong. It should also be noted, Vine referred to various rabbis regarding the word seed. More than likely, this is where he got the idea that in all scripture, both Old and New Testament, in every case, the word seed was used in a singular. And the word Zerah does only appear, I believe, in a singular in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the word sperma only appears in a singular in Galatians 3.15. There is another reference to seed in scripture, which Clifton's going to point out, which has a, um, a totally different meaning, but it appears in the dual which is a type of plural word, but it refers to two of something. But that comes much later in a series, I believe. And it has a limited application in scripture. I would assert that even in cases where the word seed is used to describe a single son, it is still used in a collective sense. And that's because in a single son, there remains the ultimate hope of having many descendants. And we see that with Abraham and Isaac. In a single son, Isaac, there remained the ultimate hope, as promised by Yahweh, of Abraham's having many descendants. Continuing with Clifton, he states under the subtitle, How the Idea of One Seed Came About. And he says, if you will look up 2233 in your Jesenius Hebrew County Lexicon to the Old Testament, you will find the following comment in brackets, which indicates it is the writer's opinion. And this isn't really the opinion of Jesenius. This is the opinion of a later editor. And it says, the remark upon Genesis 3.15 is intended apparently to contradict its application to the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption. In other words, the editor didn't like Jesenius' definition, where Jesenius said that the word for seed is a collective. It indicates a collective, a plural of offspring, as a collective unit. The editors didn't like that. So they had to qualify it because they have a corrupted church doctrine, which I will discuss shortly. The remark upon Genesis 3.15, made by Jesenius in the word seed, is intended apparently to contradict its application to the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption, as if he could not be the seed of the woman. In reply, it will suffice to remark here that in the very passage cited, Immediately after Genesis 4.25, it is clear that 22.33, seed, the word Zerah, is used of one son, namely Seth, when he was not an only one, because Cain was yet alive. And further, this seed of the woman was to bruise the head of the tempter, thy head, which can in no sense apply to any but Christ individually, who became incarnate, that by means of death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And, and in a moment, Clifton will utilize Paul's statements in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, and certain other scriptures to prove that statement to be wrong. That statement's certainly wrong. Cain's seed, Cain was still alive, but his seed didn't count, simply because he wasn't Adam's son. 
In spite of what Genesis 4.1 says, Seth was a seed to replace Abel. But, once again, Seth being a single man, being the appointed seed to replace Abel, we still see the ultimate hope of multiple descendants. So even where Seth is called the seed, just like Isaac was called Abraham's seed, there was the hope of Abraham becoming the father of many nations. And Seth was the hope that the children of Adam would multiply, would be fruitful and multiply. So there was the hope of multiple descendants. So Seth himself or Isaac himself, much later on, would still, being one individual, would still represent a collective of individuals in the promises of God as they're fulfilled concerning those individuals, which the patriarchs knew. That's how the Bible was written, because the patriarchs knew the promises of God. So Clifton is demonstrating that the idea of seed referring to a single individual only comes from church doctrine, but not from scripture. The church developed a doctrine whereby Christ alone is the seed of Genesis 3.15. Christ alone is the singular seed of Galatians 3.15. And doing that, the Bible is made to conflict with itself in many other places such as where it says of Abraham in Genesis, which Paul quoted in Romans, that in Isaac shall I see by, be called. It doesn't say in Jesus shall I see be called. It says in Isaac shall I see be called. And Jesus, or Yahshua, was never called Isaac. He was never called a Saxon. That's a reference to the children of Israel and not merely to Christ. The church doctrine purposefully seeks to nullify the racial message of the scriptures. And Clifton will prove the rest of that statement wrong, where he says that there are several things the writer has assumed which really are not in context or biblically applied correctly. The death of the first of those things, the death of Yahshua, was not the bruising of the head of the serpent but the bruising of the heel of the Messiah, for he rose again. The seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 is not implied in the singular, for in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it indicates that Yahshua has many physical brethren, and he is not ashamed to call them as such. Also, I would remind you again of Genesis 17.7, quoted above, Thy seed after their generations. And then three, in Romans 16.20, Paul told the Romans they would soon tread upon the head of Satan. By Yahshua using the Romans as his representatives to do this, suggests very strongly with this bruising, he was not acting in a singular sense. No doubt this bruising took place when the Roman army besieged Jerusalem for the majority of the Jews there at the time were of their father, Satan. Those who know the story of the establishing of Rome understand it was founded under the sign of the wolf, Romulus and Remus. This is the insignia of Benjamin. In other words, many of the Roman soldiers under Titus were Benjamites. Also, Zarajuda had settled in that same area at one time and probably had a bigger role than imagined and was in all likelihood part of that Roman army. 
Also, if you will check Josephus's Antiquities in Book 17, you will find there there were Israelite Germans and Israelite Galatians, Scythians and Celts, in that Roman army to help bruise the serpent seed. With this, Yahshua was using his people Israel to incapacitate the satanic seed at Jerusalem, while the serpent's head was bruised with the siege of Jerusalem. I am sure that it was just the beginning of the bruising which he will eventually receive. And I have to make a note here, I, I cannot recall if I had this particular passage in mind when I wrote a paper called Classical Records of Trojan Roman Judah, a few years later. But Clifton was expressing things which were learned from older identity writers. I would express a certainty that the emblems of the tribes were confused with one another in the many centuries of migration before the time of Christ. Continuing with Clifton, he says that from this it is obvious the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 is collective in nature as well as the serpent seed. Let's now consider John chapter 8 verse 44. And, and before I get into Clifton's discussion of John 8.44, I would say that the proof of the enmity is in the understanding that the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim, the descendants of the fallen angels, and that's a wider understanding than traditional two seed line has. These Rephaim were also from that same tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These Kenites and, and these Rephaim had mingled, and the proof is in Genesis chapter 15, and even though they're not mentioned in, in the list of the nations of Canaan in the book of Joshua, the Kenites and the Rephaim are still mentioned many other times in scripture as being in the land of Canaan. So they're mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, and it's very clear from the subsequent history of scripture that these descendants of Cain and these Rephaim had all mingled together with the nations of the land of Canaan, the tribes of the Canaanites. So that ultimately, there was basically not much genetic distinction between any of these people, who were all practicing Baal worship, none of the mothers, just like the average housing project in America today, none of the mothers probably knew who the fathers were of their children. They were sodomites, they were fornicators, they were adulterers. All of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah weren't contained to only Sodom and Gomorrah. All of the Canaanite tribes had practiced these things. There should be no doubt that the Canaanites were mixed with the blood of Cain and the blood of the Rephaim from that same tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Continuing with Clifton, from this it is obvious the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 is collective in nature as well as the serpent seed, and it certainly is, or else the children of Israel wouldn't have taken their part in that enmity when Yahweh commanded them to destroy the Canaanites. And when they failed, the serpent that the Canaanite people had been pricks and thorns ever since, fulfilling that pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides ever since, fulfilling that same enmity in Genesis 3.15. 
We have it all around us today. The Jews are destroying the white nations of Christendom, fulfilling that same enmity of Genesis 3.15. Clifton says that, let's now consider John 8.44. And under the subtitle, Smith and Goodspeed on John 8.44. The devil is the father you are sprung from, and you want to carry out your father's wishes. He was a murderer from the first, a word which can also mean beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks of his true character, for he is a liar and the father of them. Now, the serpent in Genesis, the serpent in Genesis was the first liar. Cain, who would have followed after the character of his father, was the first murderer and the second, no, I'm sorry, the third liar. If we want to count Adam's trying to blame his wife for his sin, which was he was just either a cuck, a feminist, or he lied, one or the other. But the next liar in scripture is Cain, where he said, am I my brother's keeper? Trying to make like he didn't know where his dead brother was that he had just murdered. So we see that Cain, with Cain, the apple didn't fall far from from the tree. Clifton says that you can see, in response to the Smith and Goodspeed translation of John 8.44, you can see very clearly that this verse is not speaking in a spiritual sense. As most one-sea liners, or I should call them anti seed liners or non-seed liners would have you to believe. If so, how would one murder someone spiritually? It would be ridiculously absurd to interpret this verse in a spiritual manner. When it is speaking of murder in this verse, it is speaking of Cain murdering Abel. It is not speaking of Cain murdering Abel spiritually, but physically. And Clifton says that I am not the only one who understands this verse in such a way. The New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, edited by Jerome H. Smith, understands John 8.44 to be speaking of the murder of Abel by Cain, for it makes reference to Genesis 4.8. This is an entire book of cross-references. As far as I know, this book is in no way promoting the two-seed-line doctrine, nor does it have an axe to grind on this subject. And he says, let's take a look at Genesis 4.8, to which this book makes reference from John 8.44. And I did, um, when I first read this in preparation for this presentation, I did check the Nestle Aland text to see if they cross-referenced John 8.44 to... Genesis 4.8, and they did not. Quite sadly, they didn't. Clifton quotes Genesis 4.8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And he says that for evidence to help prove that John 8.44 is speaking of the Jews as being descendants of Cain, or at least those Edomites who opposed Yahshua in Judea, and I'm sure that was Clifton's intention as he put Jews in quotes. They weren't real Jews, or real Judah. He says, 
For evidence to help prove that John 8.44 is speaking of the Jews as being descendants of Cain, and that Smith and Goodspeed have translated this passage correctly, we will check on the word of, like in, ye are of your father the devil. And this is the same word of, like in, Cain was the son of the wicked one where the word son is only implied. It's not written out in the Greek text, but it's certainly implied by the use of this preposition. He says that the Strong's number in the Greek is 1537. The New Testament Word Study Dictionary by Dr. Spiros Zodiates devotes five pages to define and expound the word of as used in the Greek pages 529 through 534. Obviously, I cannot quote this entire document here, but cite only that which is relevant to John 844, where it says that it is a preposition governing the genitive. That means that the preposition is used with the genitive case, primarily meaning out of, from, of, as spoken of, such subjects which were before another of the origin or source of anything. For example, the primary, direct, immediate source of persons, of the place, stock, family, condition, meaning out of which one is derived or to which one he belongs. Of the source, the person or thing, out of or from which anything proceeds, is derived, or to which it pertains. And let me say that when I translated the Christianian New Testament, I very frequently wrote the phrase from of, where the preposition ek appears, as it is used with the genitive case, and the genitive case by itself denotes of. Or possession. So the word ek used with the genitive case is really kind of redundant and it's a reason because it's emphatic. It's denoting source or origin. That's why it's redundant. It's not needed. If I were to say that you are of the devil, I don't need that preposition ek in Greek. I could just write the words the devil in the genitive case. And it would say, you are of the devil. But if I wanted to be emphatic and say that you are come from or derived from the devil, I would use the preposition ek. I very, very frequently wrote from of, where ek appears with the genitive case, which by itself means of. It denotes of. This practice is purposely redundant where I did this. I did it to show that the word denoted the source or origin of a person or thing, and not merely an association. In regard to Cain, nowhere in scripture can it be shown that he merely followed a devil in his behavior, or that he was merely a student or disciple of some devil. There is no mention in Genesis chapter 4 of Cain's having attended the First Baptist Church of Satan. Clifton speaks at greater length on Genesis 4.1 further on in the series and we will hold off any further commentary we have
until then. Once more, continuing with Clifton, more on the word of in John 8.44. He says, as I stated before herein, we really need to examine the word of in John 8.44, for it is very critical in understanding that the Jews, and he puts quotes around it because he's not speaking of Judah, are the descendants of Cain. The word of is the Greek word 1537 in the Strong's Concordance. Most one seed liners or non seed liners will claim John 844 should be taken spiritually only, that it is not speaking of a literal genetic offspring of Satan through Cain. Jeffrey A. Weekly, a one seed liner, in his 1994 booklet, The Satanic Seed Line, Its Doctrine and History, on page 24, in his attempt to discredit the two-seed-line teaching, says this of John 8.44, and Clifton has an parenthetical remark here which says that this booklet is an argument-and-answer debate conducted solely by Jeffrey Weekly. I would say that if anybody who knows Jeffrey Weekly ever listens to this podcast, I would be glad to help him redo this booklet of his and he could give the arguments, and I'll give the answers. He can't have a debate by himself and win. That's that, that's not right. He sure as hell ain't going to have a debate with me and win. I'm bragging, but that's okay. These people really get my goat. And all the goats are going into the lake of fire. Weekly says, Clifton quoting Jeffrey Weekly, This does not show that Cain was of that wicked one physically, but rather that he was of that wicked one spiritually. Let's look at part of 1 John 3, 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. When one studies out 1 John 3, 8 through 12, the meaning becomes crystal clear. I got news for weekly. It ain't clear at all the way he says it's clear. He says that it must be talking about who we are serving spiritually. If it is talking about physical descendants, then all of us are physical descendants of Satan because we have all sinned. And that's just a lie. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's true, but that doesn't make us all physical descendants of Satan. And that's not what John is saying. But I digress. Weekly says, So if we have all sinned, and if he that commits sin is of the devil, we must conclude that all of us are of the devil. So what is it saying? Are you of the devil by physical descent, or of, or are you of the devil because you serve him, or have served him in the past? And then he has argument of the two sea liners. John 8.44 John 8, says, Ye are of your father the devil. This shows that the devil is their physical father. Answer by Jeffrey Weekly. Wrong. This once again shows that the devil is their spiritual father, the one that they serve. And let me say that a few years after this, when I first read and translated the epistles of John from the Greek, I realized that the English readers could not possibly understand the first epistle of John properly. No way. Not if you're only reading it in English, you can't understand it. Because John makes a distinction which all of the translations I have seen in English neglect. That distinction is between those who merely commit sin and those who have devised sin, those who have created 
the environment in which man becomes prone to sin. Those who are the panderers of sin. There's two types of sinners in John. There's people who sin, and there's the people who create sin. And John makes a definite distinction in Greek, which the English translations neglect, and that's in the verb hamartano, which means to sin, and the verb poieo, used with the noun hamartia. The noun hamartia means sin. The verb poieo means to make or produce or create, not simply commit. And the King James just translated it as commit. And most translations follow suit. But it's wrong. It creates a lie. John's making a distinction between those who sin using the verb hamartano to sin and those who create sin using the phrase that includes the verb poieo to make, produce, or create along with the noun hamartia for sin. The comparison could be made to the person who is sick and doesn't know where to turn and ends up buying some over-the-counter pharmaceutical, which is basically sorcery, to heal his disease. And that person is a sinner because he's buying this sorcery. And and I'm just using an example. I, I mean, a lot of us are sick and don't know where to turn and end up in that same trap. And that is fine. When the children of God sin, as John told his readers in that same epistle, they have an advocate in Christ. But when the children of the devil sin, they don't have an advocate in Christ. And they are actually the ones, for the most part, who created that sorcery. Christianity forbid that for a thousand years. They created that sorcery and sold it to us. They are creating sin. And that's just one example. The, another difference, another example would be the, the weak man who has a sexual indiscretion and ends up renting a prostitute and the Jewish pimp who actually put that prostitute on a street corner. That's another difference. The Jewish pimp is the panderer, the creator of sin, the author of sin. And the weak man who simply can't help his loins but get himself that prostitute, he's simply a sinner. And that's the distinction that I believe John is making where he uses the simple verb to sin and this other word construction which is to create or to produce sin. There's a big difference in the two constructions. They have to be distinguished. And then the epistle of John makes more sense. And once that is seen, there is no conflict between 1 John chapter 3 and John 8.44. And Jeffrey Weekly has a very weak argument. And for that reason, in the sin of Adam, all Adamic men die. But in the mercy of Christ, only Adamic men, all of them, shall be made alive. And for that reason, John says in the third, in the third chapter of his first epistle, that 
one cannot sin if his seed is in him, because, as Paul explains, ultimately sin will not be accounted to him. John is writing on a spiritual level, but he is writing about the physical creation of God. So in response to this, I ultimately wrote an essay entitled Sin and the First Epistle of John, where I attempt to explain that distinction found in John's writing. Back to Clifton, where he justly criticizes Jeffrey Weekly. Clifton says, we must then determine whether John 844 is speaking of a spiritual children or a physical children. The word of is critical in John 844 for determining this. The word in the Greek is 1537. In John 844, the Greek form is ek, which is sometimes ex. You can check this out in most any of the Greek interlinears. And it says further on that the distinction is generally only whether a vowel or a consonant follow the word. And Clifton cites the New Testament Greek study aids by Walter Jerry Clark, which says on page 230 about the Greek word ek that it means out of, with the genitive by means of, or out of. And the Intermediate New Testament Greek by Richard A. Young on page 95 says the following about the Greek word ek. Ek often conveys special extensions, out of or from. For example, the prophet said that God would call his son out of Egypt, Matthew 2.15. From the Greek to English Interlinear by George Rickard Berry, on page 31 of his Greek-English New Testament lexicon, we see this on ek. Ek, or before a vowel, ex. A preposition governing the genitive, from or out of. The Thayer Greek-English lexicon on the New Testament, page 189, expresses ek this way. Out of, as separation from, something which, something with which there has been a close connection. And this is, this is true. When you see ek with the genitive, it distinguishes something which is closely connected with what it came from. There's another Greek word, apo which is a genitive, which is a preposition that governs the genitive. And apo is a preposition which is almost a synonym to ek, but apo does not designate source or origin. Apo designates separation from something. So, it, if... In, in many cases, if source or origin is not meant, then the word apo is used to mean from or out of. And Clifton says, in response to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon definition of ek, in other words, the Pharisees in John 8.44 had a close genetic connection out of or from the devil. And he goes on to say that there are 32 other places in the New Testament where this Greek word and the preposition, let me say first that if the writer wanted to describe people as being of the devil without denoting source or origin in Greek, he would not have needed a preposition at all. 
he would only have had to put the words to Diabolu, which is the devil in the genitive case. That's all he would have needed to say you're of the devil, meaning that it's only a similarity or, or a behavioral or a spiritual likeness. He would not have used a preposition. Using the preposition shows, using the preposition ek shows that there is a direct connection of these people that one group is from the other, has been derived from the other. Clifton says there are 32 other places in the New Testament where this Greek word ek is used in the same sense. Let's see if these other passages are speaking of physical or spiritual beings. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 3, it speaks of Pharaoh's and Zarah being of Tamar. And that's the word ek. Every of in this presentation, in this paragraph, is the word ek. <coughs> and Clifton asks, does that sound spiritual? Again, in Matthew 1 5, it says, Boaz begot Obed of Ruth. Again, does that sound spiritual? In Matthew one eighteen, it speaks of the Christ child being of the Holy Ghost. Again, does that sound spiritual? In Matthew one twenty, it again speaks of the Christ child being of the Holy Ghost. Again, does that sound spiritual? If it does, then Yahshua Christ can't be the Messiah, can he? If it's spiritual. The Holy Ghost is a spirit, but it conceived a physical infant in the womb of Mary. In Mark 5.8, the Redeemer commanded an unclean spirit to come out of, ek, out of the man. Does the man from which the spirit was cast sound spiritual? Of course not. In Luke 2.36, it speaks of one Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Does this sound like a real person or a spirit? In Acts 13.21, it speaks of a man of the tribe of Benjamin. Again, are we talking spiritually here, or physically? In Romans 1.3, it speaks of Joshua being made of the seed of David according to the flesh. How do the one seed liners claim this one to be spiritual, when it states outright, flesh? After all, it's the same word of used in John 8.44. In Romans 16.10, it speaks of them which are of Aristobulus' household. Can we ask again if this is someone who is a real person or something strangely spiritual? In Romans 16.11, it speaks of them that be of the household of Narcissus. Does the word of here apply to some real person or, we, or do we have to relegate it to something spiritual? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, it says the woman is of the man. I can just imagine some ardent one seedliner explaining to his wife that she is not a real person. In Philippians 4.22, it speaks of they that are of Caesar's household. I guess that we two seedliners are now supposed to believe that Caesar was something spiritual. In Hebrews 7.5, it speaks of the sons of Levi and out of the loins of Abraham. I guess the one seedliners would now have us two seedliners believe that the Levites and Abraham's loins were some kind of a spiritual mirage. In 1 John 3.8, we are told he that commits sin is of the devil. The devil, Satan, was the original lawbreaker, and that is what sin is all about.
In 1 John 3.12, it further describes Cain, who was of that wicked one. The 1C liners really do some rhetorical gymnastics with this passage. Jeffrey A. Weekly said this passage was also spiritual. In Revelation 3.9, it states, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. A synagogue is a worship house of Satan. The Jews truly do worship Satan their father, and they admit with their own words that they are descended from Cain. I have in my possession a quotation from a publication, Liberal Judaism, published in January 1949 by a rabbi, Dr. Abba Hillel Silver, who states in part, speaking of the then new state of Israel, the concept of the wandering Jew, for the curse of Cain, the curse of being an outcast and a wanderer over the face of the earth, has been removed. And perhaps... Yahweh willing, I will be in Clifton's home later this year. (coughs) I'm sorry. My throat is dry. And I will ask him to scan that for us, because we could surely like to have that online. Clifton continues, and he says that it is only the one seed liners who do not understand that Cain was to be a vagabond, a wanderer, and having the curse of Cain upon upon him. Name one other group today, besides the Jews, of course, because Clifton's talking about them, that that fits this category, so therefore it must identify Jews. In Revelation 5.5, it speaks of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Are we also supposed to believe that this is something spiritual, and deny that Yahshua came in the flesh? In Revelation chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, we have of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Reuben, of the tribe of Gad, of the tribe of Asher, of the tribe of Nephthali, of the tribe of Manasseh, of the tribe of Simeon, of the tribe of Levi, of the tribe of Issachar, of the tribe of Zebulun, of the tribe of Joseph, of the tribe of Benjamin. If we are to be consistent a word which the one seed liners like to use. If the same Greek word that is used in all of these references is physical in nature, so too is the word of in John 8.44. Very convenient to throw up the word spiritual when you, whenever you want to forge a barrier and not accept the truth which Yahshua had spoken. Ye are of your father the devil. Yahshua was simply saying to the Jews that they were genetic chips of the old block. Also, I suggest that most people who use the word spiritual in this way don't even know what the word means. The dictionary might lead to the idea of a disembodied soul or an apparition, something mysterious or mystic. The Bible meaning for spiritual is life as opposed to death. How does such a description of the word spiritual fit John 8.44. It's obvious. It doesn't. And later on in, or in, that same, in, in that same chapter of John, Christ denies that he has the same father and the same origin with these people who oppose him, who he says are of the devil. And he tells them, you are from beneath. I am from above. Now, if Adam is the son of God, then Adam is also from above. Even if Adam sinned, and a grievous sin, a sin that committed his entire race, all of his descendants, 
to die in the flesh. There are very few sins more grievous than that. And Adam is nevertheless the son of God in Luke 3.38. I do not remember whether Clifton discusses it in this series or not, but Luke chapter 11 is also an excellent second witness to John 8.44 where it says in words attributed to Christ that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this race generation in the King James Version but it's the word genos and it means race from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah of course one generation of people living at one time 5,000 years after Abel cannot be held by God to be liable of the blood of Abel it's simply not true Yahweh God would be making a false accusation. But if they're a race rather than a generation, <coughs> then they certainly can be held liable because children from the beginning were held liable for the sins of the fathers, which is why, as in Adam, all men die. But in Christ, all of the children of Adam shall be made alive. From the blood of Abel under the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this race. As Clifton has also argued elsewhere, only those of the race of Cain can be accountable for the blood of Abel. And returning to Clifton, under the subtitle, Women Have Seed Too. While women do not produce sperm, they contribute as much to the DNA of a child as does the man. And this is a very parochial argument posed by the non-seed liners that women don't really have seed. The bottom line is that Yahweh said in Genesis that the woman has seed. And that can't be argued with if God said it. I, I don't know how these clowns would argue with it, but they have. While women do not produce sperm, they contribute as much to the DNA of a child as does the man. The very instant at which the sperm unites with the ovum is when the life of a newly conceived child begins. This, is, this very first united living cell begins the birth process. This process is then continued until every single cell in the, in the newly formed child is married with the blueprints of both the father and the mother. Science knows today that each single cell of the human body has two sets of 23 chromosomes, or a total of 46. I will now quote the World Book Encyclopedia, Volume 9, page 192, Column D. Every human body cell contains two sets of 23 chromosomes. These two sets look very much alike. Each chromosome in one set can be matched with a particular chromosome in the other set. Egg cells and sperm cells only have one set of 23 chromosomes. These cells are formed in a very special way and end up with only half the number of chromosomes found in body cells. As a result, when an egg and a sperm come together, the fertilized egg cell will contain the 46 chromosomes of a normal body cell. Half of the chromosomes come from the mother and half from the father. 
With this in mind, we know then, the female supplies 23 chromosomes from one of her egg cells, and the male supplies the other 23 chromosomes from one of his sperm cells. Once we understand this, it gives a better portrayal of what the Bible is talking about when it mentions the word seed. One particular one seed liner, Charles Weissman, went to great lengths to try to prove Eve didn't have any seed. Inasmuch as Eve was taken from Adam, she could only have the very identical DNA or seed as Adam. And I must say to Charles Weissman, who passed away rather prematurely just last year, was also dishonest. Genesis 3.15 clearly says her seed. And if Yahweh God himself states that a woman has seed, who is a man to argue? But Weissman was another anti-seed liner with an agenda. The same agenda as the turkey Ted Wheeland. And Jeffrey Weekly. <coughs> Returning to Clifton, under the title, the subtitle, The Parable of the Tares. The parable of the wheat and the tares is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and 37 through 43. One is the explanation, right? The latter half. Sandwiched in between these passages in verse 35 is the statement, I will utter things which have been, which, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Yahshua then revealed the significance of the parable as meaning he, being Yahweh, had fathered the good seed, the wheat, and that the tares were fathered by the wicked one. At this point, his disciples were introduced to two-seed-line doctrine, because these things had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. If the disciples had understood it before, they wouldn't have made the request to him to declare the parable. The declarations of the wheat and the tares are as follows. And Clifton gives a very summary of the declarations in the parable. And he says that the good seed, sperma, Adam and his descendants were fathered by the son of man, the son of Adam, Yahweh or Yahshua. The field is the world. The good seed, Adamites, are the genetic sons of Yahweh, as Luke says that Adam is the son of God. The tares, or Jews, I would count a much wider group among the tares. I would say that the tares are everybody else. The tares are the genetic sons of Satan. The enemy that fathered the tares is the serpent of Genesis 3.15. And I would say that that serpent of Genesis 3.15, there were many more tares, but he sowed the tares among the wheat. The devil of Revelation chapter 12. The harvest of both the wheat and the tares is at the end of the age. The reapers are messengers or angels, they're called angels, but that's just a messenger, not necessarily a heavenly angel. The reapers are messengers identifying both the wheat and the tares. The tares are gathered by the messengers and put into fiery judgment, which is the Holocaust, the one that's coming. 
The tares will wail and gnash their teeth at the messenger's two-seed line message. Then the genetic sons of Adam will shine as the sun and will inherit the kingdom after the tares are destroyed. Clifton concludes, The one-seed liners, or anti-seed liners, are identifying the wheat, but the two-seed liners are identifying both the wheat and the tares. Only the messengers of the two-seed line fit this description as angels. While Judeo-Churchianity claims the tares are the wheat, the one-seed liners declare that there are no tares. And Clifton says, I guess that makes the one-seed liners half Judeo-Churchianity and half Israel identity with only half a message. Maybe also half hot and half cold. Or lukewarm, as it says in Revelation 3, 15 and 16. And surely Clifton will have a lot more to say of this parable of the wheat and the tares as this series progresses. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.